And today I will be reading for you out of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Hear now the word of God. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angel, he sa- angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the preeminence of Christ, that he is supreme, that he is over all things. Our identity is in him and our worship today is centered in him. There is no other greater person to worship other than the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. We should be humbled to be able to come and carry his name and to proclaim his name with our defiled lips. But because we are cleansed by his most precious blood, we now not only come here and worship, but we anticipate transformation of our souls, that our souls would be cleansed, that we would be made even this day that we would participate in the transformation of our sanctification in him. Help us to believe that this is so, and may it be so for the glory of his name and for the furthering of his kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm also in the same boat with Maharus. It has been a turbulent week and a week that um, would be easy to surrender to. Um, that many things I had planned on going to um, a preaching conference, a conference that I look forward to and have found to be refreshment and strengthening. Um, it helps me not only to be more organized and focused in my preaching, it's also in the fellowship of other pastors. It is a refreshment. But The Lord in his providence and sovereignty completely inverted that (laughs) this week. Not only was I have been discouraged and have been beaten, um, I was unable to focus very well in sermon preparation this week with all of the peripheral and dead center um, things in life. But the great thing in the message of today's Sermon is that it is that it is Jesus' superiority in worship that today, a week like this week, it has been reminded to me more and more again that He is the one that is superior, that I can only come here today pointing to His superiority, not my ability in preaching, not my ability in preparation, not even my ability in obedience and faithfulness because I had succumbed so often to temptation and doubt this week that it is difficult for me to even feel confident to stand here before you with all um, of my weakness. So may it be that I will be able to point to you today as we go through these two short verses that are going to expand as we actually look at where these references come from, um, that you might see the superiority of Christ's worship Last week we talked about his superior inheritance 
of who he is as the son. And the writer of Hebrews is using as a comparison contrast the glory of angels and continuing to show that Jesus is superior to that. There's probably not many things that we can imagine that has been created by God that has such great glory and all that has mesmerized our minds that even last week I pointed out that there's more people who believe in angels than they believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that Jesus is superior to that. And so therefore we see here that the writer of Hebrews continues to use that argument to proclaim that he has a superiority in worship. And to hone in on what it is to worship. So as the Son of God who has inherited authority over all things and holiness, righteousness, and dominion over life and death, Jesus maintains superiority in worship and service. Now some might say that's a bit redundant to say worship and service. And and it is because like I mentioned before earlier in this introduction to Hebrews is that service is the word for worship. Often when you go through the New Testament, that when you see the word worship is synonymous with service. Service and worship are the same. But there is this posture of worship that I'm going to use worship and distinguish it from service of us understanding our all and our bowing down in our posture before the Lord in our heart. And that that is connected with our service, that our service will be connected with our worship. The Son of God is superior to the angels. And therefore the angels are called to worship him. All rejoice, for he avenges the covenant and he defeats his adversaries. Our rejoicing comes because not only is he superior, but he has kept his word and he is victorious over an enemy. Our worship is always associated with the defeat of the enemy. We do not have the benefit of being like Adam and Eve in the garden where we would have seen his glory apart from our redemption. I've often used as kind of one of those, and and hopefully it hasn't been in a sinful way, but discussions amongst um, usually men if we're sitting around and sometimes families, I'll say, what do you think is greater The experience that Adam and Eve had before the fall in walking with the Lord or the experience of Adam and Eve and their redemption. Now, most would want to gravitate toward before the fall, right? To be in perfect communion without any of the baggage of sin. The problem with that for me is, is I have no idea what that would look like. Everything that we know that is great about the Lord goes through the cross in our redemption. We have no ability to begin to even contemplate and understand and have access to any of the greatness of his love and his grace apart from grace. That he has bestowed grace upon us. Not saying that he had no character of grace before the fall, that he was full of grace then. I'm just saying I can't understand it apart from my sin. Because I know that he existed perfectly before. He didn't all of a sudden say, ah, now I've got to take on a new characteristic of grace because of Adam and Eve. It was there and bestowed in him and his person before all things. I tend to think that it is in light of redemption. He wanted something greater 
And I, I don't want to go down the rabbit trail saying, well, did he ordain it for that purpose? And I would say, yes, kind of. But still, we only understand him through that redemptive love. And everything that we understand about love comes from that. For a while there, when I was more heavily involved in doing street ministry, I would ask people, if you could open up the dictionary and you would look at the word love, who would you put as, you know, a lot of times when you have a dictionary, they'll put an image that would represent that love. If you could think about the greatest love, who, what picture would you put there of someone in your life that would define that? And it was interesting that nine times out of ten, people would answer somewhat other than some romantic love. It would mention a grandmother or an uncle or someone who was there for them during a time when things were rough, when they did not deserve to be loved, and it was granted to them by some form of grace. And this was believers and non-believers alike. They would define someone who made a sacrifice of mercy toward them, that that was the epitome of love. Very rarely did I get any other kind of definition that the greatest love is redemptive love. So when we think about his worship, we can see now, and I'm giving you a bit of a hint of the tenor, that these particular passages that we see that are short on this paper, but as we open them up to where they came from in the Old Testament, that it's going to expand to understand the problem of sin. And that his greatness has to do with his victory over sin. Angels are his messengers and his ministers. They are his servants. They are not to be worshipped. They are for his dominion of the earth to rid unrighteousness. So again, we have to understand the presence of unrighteousness. We have to confront sin. We have to come face to face with sin. And I give you this ahead of time so that as we get deep into these particular passages today, that you don't necessarily, not that I would feel too bad if you accuse me. It's like Charles is just so depressing with wanting to talk about sin. But I'm telling you that it is God's way of highlighting his glory and his magnitude, that he is victorious over it. But first of all, and this is not one of those questions where you need to answer today, but does your life, you answer in your own mind, I mean, I don't want you to ignore the question, I'm saying you just don't have to answer out loud unless you feel like confessing your sins today. Does your life reflect the superiority of Christ in worship and service? Let me say that again. Does your life, who you are, your day-to-day activity, does it reflect the superiority of Christ? That means the superiority that he is supreme over everything that you worship and that you serve. See, if we have the angels here, being highlighted to us is that their purpose is to worship and serve Christ continually, do you think that your life has a different purpose? 
I often believe that our biggest failure and our biggest sin is to assume that there is some kind of compartment of life that is distinguished from the continual worship and service of God. That we have kind of like like the Lord is allowing us to rent space on the earth to live our little kingdom apart from his. And he's just got this worship thing going on and and we can do our own thing. And every once in a while we can kind of tip our hat to our landlord. That's not the reality of what all creation is like. Do we actually think that we are greater than the angels? The angels are stronger, we are told. That they have a greatness beyond us. That when you, If you could ever imagine seeing an angel, you would see that they are greater in their glory. Do you not think that we're held to the same standard? If you believe that Christ has preeminence in your worship and service, then you have to ask yourself and question yourself, how do you define that preeminence standard? What, are you sure? Or are you shaping and defining yourself? Like, yes, I, I do this. I pay my dues. I tell people I'm a Christian. Every once in a while, I'll give out a track or... I try not to do bad things, and I'm a good person. But no, is that really the standard of complete sovereignty, superiority, and domination over all things that your mind in your life is to be drawn to? Does it adhere to his word and standard of that superiority? And then one question to ask, and I'll have to explain it, is, are you consistent with the antitype of the Old Testament type? And I know that's like, what? And now he's like, what is he talking? Well, we know that the Old Testament, as I've mentioned a few sermons ago, that, the, that Jesus Christ is the New Testament, the Old Testament revealed. And so the Old Testament is a type. The Old Testament is a type of the things to come. That it is not the Messiah, it is not the fullness of the kingdom, but it's the type. But now that we are on this side of the cross and resurrection, we should be looking at our life and wondering, is our life an antitype of the type? Now, I want to explain that the antitype doesn't mean opposed to the type. You know, it's kind of like, we talked about this before with anapasta. You know, like, what is anapasta? Well, anapasta is not anti-pasta. Like, I don't, I don't eat carbs. <laughs> no, it's before. The word anti, in that case, the Latin means before the pasta. It's the salad. It's before the pasta meal. But in this situation, it is kind of the concept of opposed, not in the anti, like against, but it's the opposite side of. So if you can imagine that the type is the, if you, like, a, like a typewriter, okay? On a piece of paper. It's the letter that's that imprint on the piece of paper. But it's not the... What is that thing called? <laughs> the, 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 the template? It's not the main thing. It's, this is the main thing. And when it strikes the paper, it creates a type. This is the antitype. Alright? And so, if the type... And in this case, the type is being shown in the Old Testament... 
to give us an idea of what the antitype is. And we see that wherever there is a Messiah and a king, and people like David or even Moses, they are, they are types of Christ. But the kingdom of God that we see as a type in the Old Testament is revealed in the antitype of the church. Is that making sense? I lost y'all here. <laughs> so that as Christ is the antitype of any kind of type of Messiah and King, we, the people of God, are the antitype. Am I saying it right? I may, I may be going back and forth. You can get my gist. I might, Brian's like, I've lost <laughs> where he's going with this. We should be looking similar to the imprint that was made in the Old Testament when we see the kingdom, when we see God's people. And when you think about, just like in our prayer time this morning, when Moses came before the Lord, that his face was radiant when he spent time with the Lord, that's just a type of what it's like to be in the presence of the Lord. So for us, as the antitype of God's people, when we come to him in worship and prayer and all, it actually is should be something even grander than that. That's hard for our minds to imagine. That our presence and place and position with the Lord is in a greater place than where even Moses was at that moment with the Lord. I would say that in your heart you would have to want to contend with me. But that's what the scriptures are saying. That is what the book of Hebrews is saying. The book of Hebrews is that key. And that light for us to be able to understand that all of this stuff that you see in the Old Testament has now come in Christ and in his kingdom. And so our posture toward worship, our posture toward the angels and understanding the angels and how we're related to the angels and therefore how we are related to Christ and how our posture toward Christ should be indicators for us of how we should be even now as we come together as his people, but also in how we should serve continually and what our minds should be given to as we meditate upon the superior one that we worship. So we see in verse 6 that the angels are called to be worshiping, and it's, it's, it's a lot to do with rejoicing. And then we see in verse 7 that the angels are employed, that they are to be, they're serving, that they are like the creations of wind and fire, that they are under the service and employment of God to be messengers and ministers of that kingdom. And so as we look at angels, as we follow the, the book of the writer of Hebrews, as he is wanting us to use, he's using angels as a, a reference point, we have to understand where are we in that relation. And so Jesus is superior in worship and service. Angels are called to worship and serve. Angels are called to be the, the actual... Um, Messengers of this great kingdom? And how are we being the antitype of that Old Testament type that we see of God's people? So the New Testament is, I've heard Doug Wilson talk about it this way, is it's like an overlay that if you could get the New Testament in, in one piece of paper and get all the Old Testament and you could overlay it, you would, as you look down through the 
the New Testament, you begin to understand the Old Testament. And so therefore, as we're looking at these particular passages and we go back to these reference points that the writer of Hebrews is doing, may it be that we're going through, looking down, and then then we begin to understand who we are and our identity in Christ as we look at what's going on with God's people. And then continually, may it be that the gospel is the component of that key, that this whole call to repent, which is to acknowledge sin and unrighteousness, but to believe, to repent and to believe, and that that belief has in with it this call to worship, but also this call of conquering, this call of dominion. Because one of the challenges I think we have when we come to worship is that we are actually, when we come here like now, we are, you know, you've seen any kind of movie where, they have an aircraft carrier or a ship or something. Usually, aircraft carrier. And you're, you've got the pilots down in the inside of the ship. You're a naval guy. You might have to help me out here, James. But they're down and they're in their room and they've got a. There's a board and the you know, the captain or whoever. You don't say captain on the ship, do you? I don't know who what the whoever's telling the <laughs> the guy with the higher rank is telling the pilots. This is what we're going to do. This is kind of like we are here. When we're in worship. But it's also, it, it kind of merges. We're also like at the same time where we're in the rescue helicopter. <laughs> because the Lord has saved us from defeat. So we're at the same time we're in this moment of salvation. Being rescued out of complete destruction. And we are being employed to be further in that conquering. That is what this worship is like. So that's a, a very long introduction but I hope that puts our mind to the focus of what we're going into, and it's at least in its, in its tenor. So it's good to think about angels a little bit before we go totally into those particular passages. What, are the, what is the occupation in the place of angels? Angels are employed to the service. We know that they're messengers. That's what the word angels means. In Psalm 91 It says in verse 11 through 14, it says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. We see here this promise in the psalm that these angels were actually employed to guard who? Well, this you is Jesus Christ. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Even Satan knew this passage by heart when Jesus was being tempted. But then it says in Matthew 4.11, after he defeats Satan with giving the devil a lesson in hermeneutics and understanding passages in context, it says, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So here we have that the angels are employed to actually minister to the Messiah, to give strength. An encouragement to Jesus when he had defeated temptation and sin in the wilderness. Then further in 2 Peter chapter 4, verses 4 through 11. Consider the place of angels in light of the judgment of false prophets. Here we have Peter talking about the destruction that is going to come to false prophets. And he says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, 
but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them day by day, he was tormenting, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. I'm sorry, it's a run-on sentence, but that was Peter, that's not me. (laughs) But it gives us the sense that he's saying that even the angels are not going to be spared when they sin, that we know that by the example of history that the Lord punishes the angels when they sin. So we know that they are not above that. They are not given an out. That there is those who will, who have received the judgment of God. But in that same passage, the next verse, it says, bold and willful, he's talking about the false tr- prophets again, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power than mankind, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Here we have, we see that they're not above the weakness of sin, the possibility of sin, but at the same time that they're greater in might and power than humans that would blaspheme against them, but they're humble enough to understand that they are not the ones that will bring vengeance upon those who are the false prophets gives you the both comparison and contrast of their weakness but also their strength but also their humility but then we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 3 by Paul do you not know that we are to judge angels how much more than matters pertaining to this life he's talking about how when Christians are disputing with each other and going to unbelievers to be judges over their disputes He says, can you not handle this yourself? Are you not equipped enough with the law of God and with the love of Christ to be able to deal with your own disputes? That you, by those who are redeemed in Christ, will actually be those who will judge angels. The angels that we were just speaking about. So that even those redeemed by Christ, not because of our great position and power, but because of our great placement by the righteousness and reign of Jesus Christ on the throne, that we will be judges with Christ. 2 Timothy 2.12 says that we will reign with him. And that in Revelation 24, that this authority was being transferred to us to judge is actually Christ's authority. That we have this great privilege Although even though we are not greater in might and in power, but that through Jesus Christ, that we will be granted a delegation of his authority to be with Christ when they are judged. But then in Revelation 22, verses 8 through 9, we see that angels are fellow servants when John says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things 
And I, when, I saw, when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, and get this, quote, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Just really simple and clear. That he, the angel said, no, you're not to worship me. I am a servant of just like you who should be worshiping God. But we begin to see our eternal occupation when Jesus teaches us in Luke chapter 20 that we are to be like angels. And how are we to be like angels? Well, in verse 34 it says, And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age may marry and are given to marriage. Just back up a little bit. The context of that is when the Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, It was this woman. She was married to this man. He died and she married a brother. And she married seven times. She married and they all died. In the end, who is she married to? And he says, The sons of this age marry and are given to marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection, but that the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. That our eternal occupation is equal to that of the angels. So if our eternal occupation is equal to that of the angels, our current occupation is equal to that of the angels. That even our temporal marriages, which as a pastor, you know, you don't like to use the word temporal marriages because we want to see marriages go forever, but that even our temporal marriages... Even the best marriages that stay together until death do you part are still temporal marriages and are actually employed for the purpose of the worship and the service of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Not the other way around. That when we come to Jesus and asking him to do certain things for us in our marriage, he's not there as a servant in that sense so that our marriages could be glorified. Now he is the servant king, because he gave his life for us. So I'm not trying to diminish the great glory of who he is as servant, but he's a servant to us for the sake of his glorious kingdom and his great and glorious marriage that is truly beyond death forevermore. So now looking at the passage that is at hand here, we have in verse 6, it says, let all God's angels worship him. And just as a reminder, I think I mentioned this before, but the author of Hebrews, he's using the Septuagint as what he is using to make reference points. And the Septuagint is sometimes different than some of the other texts, but we know that this is divine and inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we can see that this is angels that are being talked about. But if you flipped your Bible over, you would see that we would be talking about gods. We would be talking about these glorious heavenly beings that are referred to in Deuteronomy as gods. 
And I am sorry, I am one step ahead of myself. Just put that on the shelf for a second. I need to actually go to the first part of verse 6 before we can go further, or there might be a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a confusion here. It says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says. I need to highlight that. So one, when we see, and again, that he's not talking about the second coming, but the, the current establishment. That when he says again, that means in contrast to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the again is in the resurrection, in the reign, the firstborn is now been presented and displayed to the whole world, that this firstborn is this preeminent name that Jesus has as being the most special, the greatest son, the the greatest possession of the Father is the firstborn. In Romans 8, 29, 30, we see how our relationship is because of the firstborn, that actually it says in chapter 8 of Romans that the purpose that God had for his son is for our sake. So when we're thinking about the fact that Jesus Christ in his resurrection and reign has been established before all the world, this is something that's really, I think, most impossible for, just like Marie said, in this life for us to understand that the Father presents the firstborn, the greatest and most preeminent of all that is in the, the, the eyes of the Lord, that the purpose of doing that was for us. In Romans 8, verse 29, it says, For those whom he foreknew, you and me, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This particular passage, the reason why I didn't want to skip it, is because when we see this presentation of Jesus Christ as the firstborn, this is very important to us. This is not just God showing off his glory. That what Paul is saying is that the whole purpose of doing that is because he foreknew us He predestined us. He conforms us into the firstborn. And now we begin to understand why we are also those who will judge angels. And we are called because of that redemption and justified. And then get this, glorified. Now, I know this is, I'm giving you all a lot today and... When we think about angels and their glory, so here we have a, the writer of Hebrews and says, you know, you all are enamored about the glory of angels. Well, I want you to think about the glory of Jesus Christ and how that surpasses the glory of angels. But then here we have Paul, which could be the writer of Hebrews also, <laughs> saying, and that glory that you see in Christ is for you. And that's why we get to judge angels. And that's That's crazy. <laughs> That's a crazy reality that is beyond our mind. We see in Colossians 
That Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, including angels. All things were created through him and for him. For he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body in the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn. But what is the firstborn of? From the dead. That everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Now I'm making this argument this way. And the reason why I had to put it on the front end. Because I knew it was going to be tedious for me to take you into Deuteronomy. But when you don't look at Deuteronomy, when you don't go through the painful admonishment of Deuteronomy that also belongs to us as the antitype of the people who were the type, we are diminishing the glory of the cross. And so we have to look at what the purposes of of God are so that when we go here back to Israel... And we look at this passage that is being referenced here when all these angels are called to worship him. When we get there, it's full of judgment and admonishment. When I was doing my study preparation, I go, well, that's not going to be fun. (laughs) That's going to be rough. I do encourage you now, if you have your Bibles with you, because it's a bit of a long passage, I want you to turn to Deuteronomy And we're going to start in Deuteronomy 31. Because in Deuteronomy 31, we are given an explanation of why Moses wrote what he wrote in Deuteronomy 32, which is what's being referenced here in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 16... It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them. So that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon Have Not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil they have done. Because they have turned to other gods. Now therefore, write this song, Moses, and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, and they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And with many evils and troubles have come, and when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness. For it will live unforgotten in their mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today. 
before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. So when we read that, we know that's, that's depressing. You know, we don't like songs that are going to be like this. And God is saying, write this song, teach it to them. It's going to be on their time. Their children are going to remember this song. And it's going to be a witness for me and against them. For I know what they are inclined to do in their heart, even this day, that they will want to serve and worship other gods. Now, if the people of Israel are a type, and we're the antitype, do we think that we are like, you know what, we are, are, are we audacious enough to think that we don't have to listen to this admonishment? We are not inclined. How many of you in here can say with all confidence that you're not inclined to worship and serve false gods? <clears throat> of course not. We are those who are inclined. And so when we see these words, those particular words that the writer of Hebrews gave us, that it's inside of the song, that it's in this context. But I want to give you kind of a, a backhanded encouragement here. The next verse, it says, And the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them, and I will be with you. Now, this be strong and courageous is mentioned multiple times, and we like it better in the other places where it's saying, be strong and courageous, you will overtake them. And those are also very good passages for us to take with us as the anti-type of these people, because we need that as we move forward. But here we have that God is going to Joshua in the same breath of talking to Moses, saying, it's actually an encouragement to Joshua because you would think that because what's going on here is that the baton's being passed to Joshua and Joshua's like, I don't want this. <laughs> you just got through saying that these people are going to be idol worshipers. I'd be like, give it to somebody else. What he's actually encouraging Joshua is, is that I will be with you and that that is a very gracious thing for us to hear that we need to hear this, that this is actually written for us because he intends to redeem us from that idol worship and transform us into worshipers of him. And it's going to be accomplished by someone greater than Moses, greater than Joshua. And so when he is encouraging Joshua in this, this is a very hopeful thing that even in light of all of that wickedness that we need to hear, that really, people, is just the tip of the iceberg of how wicked we really are. That, that is, these are actually gracious words. And they're gracious words so much that they go to the power of coming to the tongues of our children. When we look at the second commandment, it says that his goodness is for thousands of generations. Well, that includes this admonishment of sin, but this continual promise of being with us. These are actually words of grace. These are encouraging words. And so when we get to Deuteronomy 31, and I encourage you to go and read the first 15 verses to Deuteronomy 15, I am being merciful to you today not to go through all of those verses, but they are no fun. But you need to read them anyway. 
But in verse 16, which is the verse that's being referenced here in verse 6, after all of that admonishment of our weakness, we are called to rejoice with him. Oh, heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. The kind of king that we worship, the kind of Lord that we worship that is greater than angels, is a victorious king who is coming and destroying all wickedness. We need to hear the fullness of this song because we want him to cleanse his people's hearts. And then we see that he gives this admonishment there at the end of Deuteronomy 31. He says, Take heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children. Actually, this is Deuteronomy 32, 43 through 47, for those who are taking notes. Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of the law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. This is very important, and we'll come back to this later on. This is, an antitype, this is the type verse of what we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 2. This is almost a parallel in theme that we see in the beginning of chapter 2. So it's important for us to see the full context of what's going on here, that the writer of Hebrews is wanting us to go through this journey with Israel to understand what is going on here in this call for the angels to worship, for all the heavens to worship, for all gods to worship, all glorious beings and creatures of God to worship. It is in light of his glorious vengeance against sin and wickedness. We have to come face to face with that when we worship the Lord. The providential prayer of Richard this morning to talk about churches that want to omit the proclamation of repentance. When you omit repent from the call to repent and believe, you destroy the gospel. And you take away the glory and the worship of God. We must plow through this. We must take this to heart. These are not empty words that we can say, well, that's the way he was, you know, and then he fixed it with Jesus. Hebrews is here to tell us that this is for us. We're the actual antitype of what's going on there. And we have the actual antitype of hope that is beyond Moses and beyond Joshua. So this posture that it gives us is like when I was reading that John Piper was saying that the challenge of provoking his congregation to worship is that in this world there is so much entertainment going on that, it's, that if we do anything to try to match that, it's going to seem 
weird. And if we say anything other than being entertaining, it's going to seem boring and morose, dismal, glum. It's because we don't have categories for an alternative. This is quoting John Piper. If you say, not that, not this chipper, superficial, chatty, slapstick, casual, talk show host demeanor, then the only thing they can think of is dull. It has to be this silliness or it's going to just be dull. And that's tragic, he says, as if there was no such thing as 2 Corinthians 6.10, that our posture is to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So that one way to come at it, namely, is that this mysterious and glorious thing to be a human being and the realities of the Bible are the greatest realities in the world and the emotions that correspond with them are to lead us to infinite joy or an infinite horror as we contemplate hell. And these are not always distinct and they're not trivial. That... When we are leading in worship, we are to lead both in admonishment and in encouragement, just as it was here in this song from Moses, that we can rejoice. But you've got to hear the first 15 verses first so that you can understand the glory of that rejoicing. And then it says in verse 7 that he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire giving this correlation between angels as being like other created things, the wind and the fire that all are for the purposes of glorifying Jesus Christ. The opening call to worship says that he is above the cherubim. Does anybody know what that imagery is of when you see that he is seated above the cherubim? What is that actually implying or reminding you of in the psalm? Does anybody know what the Ark of the Covenant looked like with the cherubim that he's sitting upon and above the law that here the the cherubim are given this, this place of presenting the law, but he is above that, that he is higher than that, but he is sitting on his law. And what does the law do to us? It condemns us, but because he sends his son who kept the law on our behalf, We actually have access to this God that sits above the cherubim. And here it says that he is riding, if you go to that particular passage in Psalm 104, that he rides the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flaming fire. And then as he is going with this mighty glory and this victorious fight against wickedness and sin... The Lord rejoices in his works, the psalm says. And then the psalmist says, May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. That when we come to this great and mighty victor over sin and death, when we are coming face to face to our wickedness, we are being reminded that he is victorious of it. We're like, this is, my, this is how we are the enemies of God, and he is destroying that part of us. He is becoming victorious over it and defeating it perfectly. So when we read there in the psalm, it says, let sinners be consumed from the earth. We have to look at the cross or we will be those who will be completely consumed and be no more. But the psalmist can end this psalm by saying, bless the Lord. Oh, my soul, praise the Lord. This is nothing but a really 
complicated presentation of the gospel. When we are given this contrast of the angels and who we are and how the angels are called to worship Him and to serve Him, we should see that we are being conquered by the King. This victorious military King. And then we would understand what it is to be sorrowful but always rejoicing. I'm glad that there are other brethren who've come today weak and beaten. Not because I'm glad that they were beaten, but as I don't feel as alone. We've got to go through this path because the Lord is not just conquering over his enemies out there. He's conquering over the enemies right here. And that's a glorious thing. That every time we come face to face with trials, whether it be due to the sin of others or the sin of ourselves, we can take with great thanksgiving to rejoice in the Lord that he is conquering. And so this is the posture that we are to have. Doug Wilson says that when we hear the, the phrase, I will, be, I will never forsake you, I will always be with you. A lot of people like to think about that as, you know, maybe in the backdrop of somebody cuddled up on a blanket with their coffee mug and it says it on there and they're like, oh, he's always going to be with me and we're going to be cuddled up here. And he says, no, it should be like the backdrop of the beaches of Normandy. That he is calling his church, the people of Israel, the true people of Israel, the antitype of the Old Testament. And the thing is, is that we are, we are those who are with his his line, the front line going in. But at the same time, we are also those, our sins are before us. And he is conquering over them. So to close, I want to read 2 Corinthians 6, 2-13. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way. Okay, so this is Paul talking here. He says, you know, in a favorable time I'll listen to you. In a day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul is making a, a call to the Corinthians. He says, I'm putting no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And then get the list of this. Okay, these are the servants of God. And these are distinct servants that are even different than the angels. That we commend ourselves by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, Calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots. Labors, sleepless nights, hunger. This is the the way that we commend ourselves that we have to enter into this battle with the Lord. Taking his cross. That we will face hardships, sleepless nights, and this kind of labor. But we bring into it our response and our posture is by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, 
genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that it, even here the Lord is gracious to us. That that's the the call to our posture. But even there, I'm I have failed Him. But with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, yet are true, as unknown, yet well-known, as dying, but behold, we live, as punished, yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you're restricted by your own affections. In return, I speak to you as children. Widen your hearts also. You know, as a past salesman, this is the hardest sell ever. (laughs) Saying, hey, this is what it's like to be us. This is the nature of what it is to be his people. But we have these great riches. We have this great inheritance. We have this great reason to rejoice. And this is what it's going to look like as we go through that battle. But when he calls us to open up our hearts to repent and believe, know that the victor has come. That it's a weird already but not yet battlefield. He has already promised victory that even when we cannot uphold purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, genuine love, and truthful speech, that the Holy Spirit and the power of God and the righteousness of Jesus Christ is victorious. Let us pray.